The Red Cross is the largest humanitarian organization in the world, with some 300,000 volunteers. They respond to, on average, 64,000 disasters a year. Now, in 2017, the Red Cross actually responded to an unprecedented seven major natural disasters within a 75-day period. And while disaster relief is a significant part of the mission of the Red Cross, it is only one part of the organization's broad scope and the impact that it has on our lives and the lives of our neighbors. Today, we are very delighted to be joined by the CEO of the American Red Cross, Gail McGovern. Gail is actually hosting us here on location at the American Red Cross. Gail, welcome. Thank you so much, Laura, and thanks for having me on this show. Absolutely, we're delighted. So Gail, you are the longest serving female CEO of the Red Cross since its founding in 1836, right? I think only Clara Barton may have had a longer run. I have a feeling I won't beat Clara Barton's run. She had a 23-year run, run with the American Red Cross. <laughs> you uh, have led the organization through a very significant transformation, uh, bringing almost 30 years of expertise as a corporate executive at both AT&T and later Fidelity, and also as an academic at Harvard Business School. Um, we're going to talk all about that and your leadership and how it differs, but let's jump right into the mission of the Red Cross. I mean, a lot of folks, I think, know the Red Cross, of course, but probably don't understand all the things that it does. Well, first of all, you mentioned that we respond to 64,000 disasters every year, and that always surprises people. I mean, most of these were not on the news. People don't know about it. Most of them are home fires. And they are caused usually by cooking accidents. And they're preventable. Um, and the death and injury that occurs from these home fires are also preventable. About 2,500 people die every year in home fires. And another 13,000 are injured. So we've got a big focus on safety, on ensuring people have smoke alarms. Um, but every single day in DC, there are going to be between eight and 10 home fires in the next 24 hours. And that's pretty typical of all large cities. So it's something that's very much part of our mission. What most people don't know is the work we do for the military. Uh, we handle about 400,000 calls every year from members of the military, their families, veterans. Um, some of them are emergency calls, like get my son home, his father's on his de deathbed, mm -hmm. or get my husband home, he's about to become a father for the first time. Um, and we also get calls from veterans that have issues that are having a hard time making a mortgage payment, for example. We have volunteers in every VA hospital. We have volunteers on every military base, including in theater. Mm -hmm. We have volunteers in Afghanistan and Iraq, for example. So this is very important to our mission. It's pretty much the least known part of what we do, but mm -hmm. I have to say, if I run into somebody in a uniform and I'm wearing my Red Cross pin and I thank them for their service, they usually will tell me a Red Cross story. Hmm. So that's a, a very important part of what we do. We also provide about 40% of the nation's blood supply. And uh, in order to do that, every day, 
15,000 people have to show up at a blood drive and they open up their veins to save the life of a complete stranger. It's a remarkable thing to see and I love talking to our blood donors because they're just so selfless uh, doing this incredible act. And, of course, we teach first aid, CPR, lifeguarding lessons, swimming lessons, babysitting lessons. Uh, we do about six million of those every year. Uh-huh. And uh, it's very usual for me to go into a city and be recognizing an ordinary person that did a dramatic thing and saved someone's life. Tell me a story. I know you must hear thousands and thousands of stories of how these various efforts, and certainly the training programs, ultimately pay off. Give me an example. Oh my gosh, I can just give you so many. <laughs> um, first of all, the first person that came to mind was an 11-year-old girl who took a babysitting class and saved her three-year-old sister from choking. Uh, grandparents that were taking a walk in Minnesota heard screaming, ran over to a lake where a four-year-old child fell through the ice. And they pulled that kid out and did CPR on her for 20 minutes before the paramedics came. And that child is as right as rain now. It's really amazing. It's just over and over again. Just people that spring into action and don't stand there like helpless bystanders. And it's very empowering to take the training because you know that if, heaven forbid, you walk into a situation like that, you'll know what to do. Over the, over the weekend as I was preparing for the interview this morning, uh, my daughter was having a play date with a friend. She's eight. And she said, what are you doing, Mommy? And I told her. And she said, show, show me some of those videos. So we pulled up some of the training videos because she's an aspiring babysitter. <laughs> and I think it was, it was, they're incredibly well done, but they're also simple enough that even someone who's as young as eight, nine, or 10, I mean, an eight-year-old doesn't need to be babysitting, so make no mistake, <laughs> she won't be um, anytime in the next little while. Um, but to give her some sense that she too can help save a life, um, I think that's really, really empowering. Absolutely, and and you know, even at eight, if she recognizes some of these warning signs, she'll know to pick up the phone and dial nine one one. And I highly recommend that everybody take a CPR first aid course because they say that twenty seven percent of us are going to happen upon someone that's in cardiac arrest in our lifetimes. And I can't imagine anything as heartbreaking as just standing there and not knowing what to do. Absolutely. So let's let's go back to the disaster relief piece. That's such a big piece of what the Red Cross does. And I think folks would be fascinated, I would be fascinated in understanding the anatomy of, of, of the disaster relief. So what happens? Like, when do you get the call? And what, what, what happens, especially with something that's a large-scale disaster like we saw so many of last fall? Well, let me start with the smallest disasters that we respond to, and then I'll take you all the way to the other end. Um, when there's a home fire, uh, we get dispatched by the local fire department because they know that we're going to come and offer help. And one of the most stunning Red Cross stories I've heard, a volunteer told me that she was dispatched in the middle of the night, and she usually just kind of gets the general area, but when she's on the street, she just waits till she sees the fire engines as she's driving along. 
and she said she was driving down the street, she couldn't find any fire engines. She came upon a multi-dwelling home where 12 people were sitting on the stoop and behind them was nothing, the entire house burnt down. And they were just sitting there. And she jumped out of the car and she said, where's the fire department? And one of the gentlemen on the stoop said, they had to respond to another fire, but they said, just wait, because the Red Cross will come, they always come. I mean, that family needed a place to stay. They, they needed food, they needed clothing, and this is what we do over and over again about 64,000 times a year. Mm-hmm. And then when it comes to big disasters, it really depends on what type of disaster it is. Mm-hmm. There are disasters that give you a lot of notice, like a hurricane. And so we will track where that hurricane is coming, and then we will send in supplies and food and cots and blankets and emergency response vehicles to the the whole area where they're predicting it might land. Do you have infrastructure here at the Red Cross to to monitor hurricane hurricanes as they're coming? We certainly do. We do have infrastructure. In fact, um, we have a disaster operations center. Um, We have a situation room right in this headquarters building that pipes in what we see in that operations center. We have digital operations centers so we can monitor social media, which is very helpful because we will see tweets that say, I'm in far Rockaway. Can you please send something because... Uh, the Red Cross isn't here yet. And so in real time, we can start directing food, food trucks, et cetera, to take care of people. And we have several of them around the country as well. And we're very linked into the Weather Channel. Um, so you can watch some of these disasters literally formulating out in the ocean and then start predicting where you think it's going to land. And we will pre-position supplies around where they're predicting it will land. Um, That doesn't mean when they strike that there aren't access problems. In Houston, our biggest problem was all the roads turned into raging rivers. And getting people in there, getting the supplies, the cots, the blankets, the volunteers, it was next to impossible. And we tried to commission some high water vehicles from the Department of Defense, but it was taking a while for the requisition to go through. So we called the city and got dump trucks and we threw our volunteers on these dump trucks. And it was somewhat dangerous having them go back and forth, but we broke through and were able to get volunteers and supplies to a huge shelter. It was a convention center that that we were using as a shelter. How about the staffing and mobilization of volunteers? I have always been fascinated and curious about how that happens. You have people presumably ready to go. But how do you mobilize them? What does that look like? Well, first of all, one of the things I love about the American Red Cross is our volunteers. They are amazing. And whenever I go to a disaster, I meet people that have been deployed 10, 15, 20 times. They just see a need, and they're such humanitarians, they have to get up and go into action, and they have to fulfill it. We have a big IT platform where volunteers can register and then we can deploy them so we know where they are and we know how to reach them. And as soon as we see a disaster formulating, we start placing calls. So, and it is just amazing. Every time 
This past fall, for example, there were just so many back-to-back -back disasters. Every time I would think, I just hope they come. I just hope they come. And there they are. There they are, you know, living in rough conditions. You know, we put them several in a hotel room or staff shelters where they're sleeping on cots. And they don't complain. They just keep a smile on their face and give out lots of hugs and comfort. It's, it's an amazing thing. And it's just, it lifts your heart to know that, that there's just such generosity in our country. I mean, it really does lift your heart. Yeah. Let's talk about um, your, your tenure here at the American Red Cross. You, you joined the organization 10 years ago in 2008 at a very, what I think is fair to say, a financially troubled time. The organization had $209 million in operating debt and was literally borrowing money, as I understand it, to make payroll. Um, really a horrible situation for any organization, much less a charity, to be in. Um, what was that like? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> so um, walking into the Red Cross, I, I knew we were um, struggling financially, so I expected that. Um, what I didn't appreciate was the love that employees have for the American Red Cross. And so I walked in thinking this is going to be a massive culture change and that's going to be problematic. But I have to tell you, this place is so mission driven that when you tell them, and, and these are exactly the words I used, I said, we have to save the American Red Cross. We have to, you know, the country needs a vibrant, robust American Red Cross. We have to save the Red Cross. It was so galvanizing for the, the folks and so many people stepped up. I mean, we had to do some pretty drastic things in those first couple of years. We withheld our merit increases. We withheld the 401k match. Um, and once we were able to write the, the ship, obviously, we, we lifted those restraints. But people did not complain. The only time I heard complaints is when we had to do layoffs. Mm. And the complaints weren't from the people that were getting laid off. It was the people that stayed. I, I vividly remember getting an email from someone that said, Angelo is a single parent, and he's taking care of a child with disabilities can you give him half my salary so he can stay? Oh, wow. It was unbelievable. I mean, you know, it, in corporate America, I've experienced layoffs, and it's horrible. But people power through it, and they move on. In a humanitarian organization, when people are looking at the right and left of them, and they see some empty cube next to them, it's heartbreaking. But I have to say, everyone stepped up, and... It took two years to eliminate the operating deficit, and we've been steadily paying off all that debt. Um, but it was not an easy time, but it just made me fall in love with the Red Cross. I mean, it really did. I thought, it, it, you know, this is an organization that will embrace change if they understand the change through the lens of the mission. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So you're drawing on some 30 years of corporate experience and also experience as an academic um, as well. How, I mean, that's 
really useful, but this is a very different situation that you're coming into. Let's talk a little bit about those differences, the, the, the training that you had and how that was really helpful, but then the big differences that you saw, I mean, some of which obviously the, the very mission-driven mentality would be one, but what, what, what else did you see? What are those differences? Well, first of all, what I was able to bring to the Red Cross was just experience in running lines of business. So I knew how to read financial statements. I could see when um, we were struggling. I could figure, I had techniques to reduce expenses and to improve fundraising, for example. But um, it's very different leading here than anything I ever experienced. And honestly, I think I've learned more about leadership being at the Red Cross than I did at any other point in my career. Um, when you are leading a volunteer force of 300,000 people, um, you cannot just say, hey, jump, and have them say, how high? It's just not gonna work. So you can say, okay, jump, and they will say, no, you haven't convinced me yet. And it's a really fair thing to say. I mean, it's not like I can take away their salary or you know, give them a bonus if they decide to you know, follow direction. Um, you have to lead through the, the power of your ideas, not through the power of your office. And that was both humbling but also really liberating because once you embrace that, you know people are following you because they think you're doing the right thing not because you know you you're directive and you can you know influence them in a negative way so it really taught me also to lead from the heart which was something i probably should have done more in corporate i mean as a kind boss and very participative boss and i'd always hear everybody's opinions and but i was pretty logical in my approach um, and i would persuade people through the logic of you know what we were working on and how to improve shareholder value, for mm -hmm. example, um, I, I've changed my leadership style since I've been here. And honestly, I wish I could go back in a time machine and do it when I was <laughs> in corporate America because I think it would have had some really positive results. Yeah. I mean, everybody wants to be part of a higher purpose. Everybody does, and. Um, you know, when I was at AT&T, people get all wound up over something, and I would say, calm down, it's just telephone service, we are not saving lives here, just take a deep breath. And at Fidelity, I'd say, calm down, we're just managing money, we're not saving lives here, everybody take a deep breath. Then I come here, that is not going to work, <laughs> because we are saving lives every day. So I, I've learned to talk through the mission, and it's really what gets people motivated. Mm -hmm. So you know, I, if I could do that time machine thing, I would go back to AT&T and say, people, this is important work. We're connecting others to you know, people that they love. We're making businesses run by giving them the data that they need. You know, we've got to get this right. Mm -hmm. And I think that would have been very motivating. I mean, like I said, I, I think I was a motivational leader, but 
Um, there's a way to do that, and I don't care if you're manufacturing widgets or you're at the American Red Cross. There are ways to do that that can help people feel like they're part of something bigger than themselves. Mm-hmm. How can you impart some of that wisdom on your sort of former colleagues in corporate America? Uh, there is a lot of discussion about purpose-driven initiatives and and aligning your people around a purpose, but your experience has been very different. Would you have advice for people at the C-suite CEO level for how to internalize that in a different way, given the experience that you've had here? Well, I have to say I struggled with it a little bit in the beginning because, um, you know, I, I so vividly recall a meeting that we had of our 160 um, biggest chapter executives. And it was when I was trying to lay out a strategy to get them to understand that we needed to um, reduce expenses. And it was right when I first got there. And I could tell that they were not really all that interested in me laying out you know, all the logic and all the stuff. They, they were very skeptical and they were trying to figure out, you know, whether or not I even got it, you know. And so I got up and I actually surprised myself. I, because I was, I, I got myself kind of wound up. I got very passionate. And I said, we have got to do this. We've got to do this. Lies are depending on us. And the night before, I checked a bunch of their websites and I went around the room and I said, who would put the blankets around the people that landed in that plane and the Miracle in the Hudson? Yeah. And who would respond to that four-alarm fire in Buffalo, New York? I just, I went around the room and I could see they thought, she gets it. Later, when I sat down, I thought, God, that felt kind of sappy. But I looked around that audience and I thought, they're going to be able to get behind this. And so the advice I give is it's a little unnerving, purpose-driven leadership. It's like it can't just be a platitude. It's a little unnerving when you let yourself um, get emotional at work. Mm-hmm. But, um, boy, it just makes people want to follow you, particularly millennials. They're like, show me how this is going to help the world. And if you can do that, it really will make a difference. So it's scary. It's like jumping off the diving board into the deep end of the pool. But once you do it, it becomes a technique. And even more importantly, it becomes part of who you are. Mm -hmm. And it's made me a, a kinder, more generous, gentle person, I think. So looking back over the last 10 years, what are you most proud of? The world looks pretty different uh, here at the Red Cross uh, compared to the way it looked in 2008. What are you most proud of? Well, I guess I guess my legacy is going to be that we helped turn around the place, um, which uh, is very gratifying. Um, but if you ask me what I want my legacy to be, um, I really am attempting to make this the best place in the world to work or to volunteer. And I'm trying to create a culture where people collaborate, they like each other, it's diverse, it's inclusive, people feel safe, they have different approaches to respond to 
problems so that we have lots of point of view and we don't make mistakes. I just want a culture where the employees and volunteers feel engaged, valued, and love coming to work in the morning. So if that becomes my legacy, um, I'll feel like I really did something at the American Red Cross. Yeah. I've seen where you're employing the town hall concept, which is fairly typical in large corporate organizations, but probably a bit atypical for um, a philanthropy or a nonprofit. Um, is that part of that strategy as well? So I've been doing them literally since I joined the Red Cross. and. Um, it's fun to do. It's also a little bit nerve-wracking because we use technology to reach um, thousands of people. Um, and uh, you never know when it's going to go down and you know, everything is a little bit fragile. But I have to say, um, I love doing it. Um, I love getting the feedback from it. Um, I always end with something about the mission. And I, I love talking about our mission. The latest round that I did, I really made it personal more than I normally do, because uh, you know I've got this 10-year milestone coming up, so I'm kind of looking back as well as forward. And I just talked about how the mission has touched me personally on so many different levels. Um, and so I enjoy doing it. I've uh, over this period of time of doing it, I, I get a lot of great support from it. Um, it takes a little out of me, <laughs> and, and each time I do it, I do about four or five of them. Wow. Yeah, and so... And they're I, live. I, I, and they're live, and so questions. I keep saying the same thing again and again, and I'm thinking, whoa, am I even making sense anymore? Did I just say that? Did I just say that? I have a lot of that, did I just say that moments, but um, it, it's, it's very gratifying, and it keeps it real. It really keeps it real. Let's talk about leadership lessons, right? Combining your corporate experience with your nonprofit experience, what leadership lessons would you impart on others as they're, especially those who are just embarking on their career and thinking about what path they may wanna go down and the value that you no doubt have seen from this notion of cross-sector leadership. Talk a little bit about your leadership philosophy and what you've learned because of those dual experiences. Well. We covered the, the notion of leading from the heart, mm -hmm. and I would impart that advice quite a bit. Um, I also think the most important thing you can do as a leader is pick good people. And in fact, I'm going to correct myself there. Not good people, the best people. Um, you know, we all think we're frustrated missionaries and that if we bring somebody in and they have some rough edges that we're going to be able to smooth them out. But I, I have to say over time, I've learned that for the most part, people don't change. They change a little bit on the margins, but they don't fundamentally change their character. So I always am really careful when I staff. And I have the best senior leadership team at my table right now than I have ever had in any other job. I mean, they're remarkable. And that's what enables us to do everything we do. So I tell people, if you have a 1% nagging doubt that the person you're considering for the job isn't gonna work out, don't hire them. Just wait. Wait, wait, wait. It is so much easier to wait then staff for expediency and then have to dig out of a personnel problem. 
and you want a staff for chemistry. You know, you're going to bring somebody into your team. You want to make sure that they get along, and you've got a staff for diversity of thought. Because if everyone around your table is like-minded, you're going to make a million mistakes. If there's somebody that disagrees with somebody else and they can attack each other's ideas, not each other, you get so much more done. And the other piece of advice I would give is to really learn to embrace change. Because in this world, if you can't, you're going to just get into all kinds of trouble. And accept the fact that if you're going to embrace change, that you're going to make calls that turn out to be wrong, and admit those mistakes immediately and course correct. And if you admit the mistake immediately and course correct, people have way more respect for you. It, it's stunning when you do that. You know, they'll, they'll say, okay, I'll try this because I know if you, you made a bad call, you'll, you'll fix it. And so often I've seen that at the Red Cross, they're scratching their heads and saying, all right, let's try it because this leadership team will course correct if they have to. Um, resiliency is really important when you're a leader. Mm -hmm. Even if you don't feel it, act it, and pretty soon you will feel it. Um, if you don't model optimism, people are gonna fall apart around you. And that's a really important thing I've learned as well. Let's dig into that concept of resiliency in particular. Um, you know, it can be closely tied to self-doubt. And as women, sometimes, um, present company perhaps excluded, I don't know. No, definitely included. <laughs> For most of us, it's something that we carry around in a way that I, I think in a, in a more acute way sometimes than men do. How do, you, how do you deal with that? How do you deal with a setback? How do you employ that notion of resiliency? Well, first of all, I think every human being on this planet has an insecure 17-year-old somewhere inside <laughs> of them. You just have to shut that person up. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, I like to think of myself a bit like a perfectionist. I know I have that problem. But I've learned over time to forgive myself. And if you don't forgive yourself and you keep hitting yourself in the back and saying, you know, why did I do that? Why did I do that? Um, you're not doing yourself any favors, but more importantly, you're not doing your team any favors. If they see that, um, they're all gonna start spiraling. And uh, you know, if you're pessimistic, they're gonna be more pessimistic. If you're optimistic, they'll be optimistic. And I've just learned, you know, my brother taught me this thing. He and I, he's six foot five. <laughs> He weighs about 220 pounds. So there was only one sport the two of us could do together, and it was bowling. <laughs> so, so this is back in the day where the bowling machines weren't automated. So you had these little yellow pencils like you see on the golf course, and you, you could fill in your, your spares and your strikes and everything else. And my brother, would he has this innate ability to just let things roll off his back. And he would do this thing when we were bowling. He, he would have a really bad couple of frames and then he would take this little yellow pencil and he'd draw a thick line. And I'd say, what is that? And he said, it's my serious bar. From now on, I'm only throwing strikes. And it kind of worked for him. <laughs> so I would just draw myself a mental serious bar. I'd say, okay. I messed that up. 
but for now on, I'm going to take us this way and I'm going to forgive myself and I'm going to only throw strikes. So I, I, it's not always easy to do. There are times when I come home and if I had one, I would kick the dog or whatever. Um, but I, I just over time, I've realized that you're not doing yourself any good. You're not doing the institution any good. And you've got to compartmentalize it and keep moving on. And sometimes it's hard. I mean, every once in a while, I'd have a problem and it would not roll off my back. When my daughter was very young, um, I recall at time, I lost a big client to MCI, which is a big telecom firm back in the day. And uh, I usually could, you know, really shake it off before I came home and saw her. But uh, I walked in the front door and she was bouncing up and down, mommy, mommy, mommy. And I said, Annie, um, take it easy. Mommy has the blues. And she said, what are the blues? <laughs> I said, it means mommy's sad. And she said, uh, why are you sad? And I said, well, there's this company called Mean MCI, and they stole one of mommy's customers. I wanted to talk to somebody, and she was it. That was all that was home. <laughs> and she goes, well, why don't you steal one of their customers? And I started laughing, and she started laughing. I'm driving to work the next morning, and I'm thinking, that was not such a bad idea. <laughs> <laughs> so we actually put a smoking deal in front of one of MCI's customers. <laughs> it was the last time she came up with any good ideas. That's awesome. But I do tell people, tell your problems to a toddler and they'll really seem ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> right. So this job is very consuming. I'm sure all of the, your jobs have been consu largely consuming. You were in a, in a corporate scenario, very demanding jobs. This is different. This can be consuming on multiple levels, and especially on the emotional level, I would think. How do you deal with that? So first of all, it's a great question. Um, I used to give talks on work-life balance when I was in corporate America. I mean, I was a senior officer at AT&T. I was running half a trillion dollars of assets and fidelity, and I, would, I was really good at work-life balance. And you had two, two children. And right? one child. What, one one child. child. And I was really good at work-life balance. Like, I got home, I relieved the nanny on time every day. I could talk about it endlessly. I mean, I worked all night while the kid was asleep, but nevertheless, um, I was really good at it. And then I came here. And I don't know if it's the mission of the Red Cross that gets under your skin or the fact that it, I arrived here concurrently with my daughter going off to college. And so there was not that enormous pressure on me to get home on time. And I have a husband who is completely supportive and flexible, so he doesn't stop me. But I've learned that work has you know, kind of subsume me, but I like it. I know that sounds a little bit crazy, but I'm sort of built to work. So work has become a bigger part of my life, but it's a part of my life that I really enjoy. Now, the part of your question that's harder to answer is what about the emotionalism? Because every once in a while, something will absolutely knock the stuffing out of me. I mean, I recently came back from Parkland, Florida, and honestly, I wasn't right for several days. And it was, um, I, I was just sad. And I, you know, I had to pull it up when I came here, but when I came home, I was still sad. Um, having said that, when I see our mission in action, there's so many people 
that are weepy because they lost their homes or you know, they, they had practically nothing and now they really have nothing and they're living in a Red Cross shelter. But what I see over and over again is people pulling it up. They say, you know, they tell me their story, I get a little weepy. And by the way, I never cried in corporate America. I don't know. It's it's a good week if I'm not crying here. So, you know, I I get a little weepy. They get a little weepy. You know, I I give them a hug, and then they say, oh, no, 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 don't worry. They're telling me this. I'm going to be all right. My family is okay. I'll figure it out. And I hear, you know, my dog is okay. I have God. You know, my friends are okay. I mean, I just hear this over and over again and so you walk out feeling grateful for what you have in awe of the resiliency of the American public and I also get to see the generosity of the American public donating blood volunteering their time giving financial donations I mean I I feel like I'm the luckiest person in the world because I'm in this job and when people talk about oh it's so divisive right now I think, well, not my country. I see generosity. I see resiliency. Um, I don't see political strife day to day in my job. Yeah. So that raises an interesting, uh, a really interesting question too. There's been so much discussion of othering and tribalism, and use whatever terminology you want to use. There have been some really smart, poignant articles written recently about this notion. Um, how does that come into play as it relates to the mission of the Red Cross? Because you have all different types of people all mixed together who are dealing with these tra- tragedies in many cases. H- how do you look at this notion? What's your perspective? Well, this is another reason why I feel so grateful to work here. We have seven fundamental principles, and this isn't the American Red Cross. It's the entire Red Cross movement. And three of those principles are actually, to my way of thinking, really redundant. It's impartiality, independence, neutrality. And they're all basically saying the same thing, which is we do not take political sides. We do not advocate for a a political side. Um, Anybody is welcome into our shelter, anybody. Um, We don't ask for credentials. We don't ask questions. If you are in need, you're welcome in our shelter. And as a result, I make visits at the Hill often, but nobody there knows my political party, and they understand the neutrality of the American Red Cross. It is so liberating to be able to have constant conversations with people that don't get into this. And it's even more liberating to see people working side by side. I mean, it's unbelievable. We have so many volunteers in the faith-based community. I mean, we had, during Hurricane Harvey, we had a lot of uh, Red Crossers internationally come and help us out. So we had the Mogan David Adam, uh, the, the Israeli Red Cross, Islam Relief, hanging out together, at, you know, responding to disasters. Um, you know, you, you name a faith-based organization, they're in our shelters. It's, you know, you put on a Red Cross vest and you're a Red Cross volunteer. You're not a Republican, you're not a Democrat, you're not going to be arguing, you're, 
you know, you're a Red Cross volunteer, and, and we stay away from politics. And as a result, I know there are tribes out there. Um, I'm, I'm beginning to learn to hate that term, but I, I know they're out there, but I don't have to engage in it. Nobody really has to. Um, and it's a, a gift you get when, you, when you're a Red Crosser. So this is going to be a really tough one. Um, you've made a couple of career transitions, uh, fa- fairly big ones that we've talked, talked a good bit about. How do you know? How do you know when it's time to transition or when it's time to leave something that you've been working on? How do you know? Wow, that is a great question. So I honestly cannot think of a job that I had. My first job I got when I was 14 that I really didn't like. Well, I once worked in an ice cream factory. <laughs> I could think of better jobs than that. <laughs> it was kind of a strange one, but um, I, I just love to work. Mm-hmm. When I'm not learning, that's when I think it's time to go. And, you know, I was so fortunate. At at and I had this career where I, I enjoyed the lattice as much as I enjoyed the latter. So, you know, if I felt like I wasn't learning, I would start chatting with my boss and saying that there are opportunities, you know, elsewhere in the organization. I'm not asking for permission. I just want to learn. And so I moved around quite a lot. Um, and that's why I was able to stay there for 24 years. I just kept learning. And, you know, as long as I, I think of myself as being very intellectually curious, and as long as there's a puzzle or a challenge and I'm learning new things, I'm, I'm totally motivated. Um, that's one of the beauties of the Red Cross. There's always something new. There's always something to tackle. When I was at at and I, I finished running two of the biggest business units. So it was pretty much the whole company. Um, and I was doing consumer marketing. And back then, there weren't interesting channels like there are today. It was TV and telemarketing. And I thought, I've got, to, I've got to learn something new. And that's when I knew it was time to go to Fidelity. And then I kind of got the itch to give back. And that's what sent me to Harvard. Um, there were a lot of firms that were falling apart, like Enron and WorldCom. And I just I thought, oh, if I could influence tomorrow's leaders. Uh, it took me about two classes to realize those, those students are smarter than I was. They were teaching me more than I was teaching them. Uh, I had some street smarts, but they were really bright. So it didn't quite scratch the itch to give back, but I loved it. And then when I got the call to join the Red Cross, that's when I thought, this is really giving back. And that's when I was able to make the move. So I hope that answered the question for you. No, it's great. I mean, it's a really tough question. And I think for each person, it's very personal. But it's helpful to hear how someone else has thought about that, who's made these career transitions. I do have one other comment to make about it. I have noticed sometimes that particularly women feel like, okay, I didn't get a good performance appraisal. They know intellectually that it's a chemistry problem between them and their boss. But they firmly believe if they keep working really hard and show their stuff, that they will get promoted. 
it's not going to happen. You know, sometimes two people just don't get along, and there's a chemistry problem. So the other thing I've learned is stop hitting your head against a brick wall. And this is when I was younger, rising in business. Um, it, it, you're not going to convince someone to like you if they don't. Mm -hmm. And it's, it may not be you. It could be them. So I, the advice I give to young people is remember that lattice. You go into that boss and say, I have learned so much from you, and I want to keep learning. So is there another opportunity that I can have that's not a promotion? Um, they'd probably be relieved, you'll be relieved, and then you just restart and try again. That's great advice, really great advice. Okay, how can our listeners, if they are interested in volunteering and helping at the, at the American Red Cross, what's the best way to go about that? Well, first of all, they can walk right into their local chapter if they want. But if uh, they don't want to leave their home, all they have to do is get on our website, redcross.org, and it will uh, put you on a place where you can figure out where you, you want to volunteer and what you'd like to do. It will show you where you can go to donate blood. It will also show you if you want to make a financial donation. Um, we always need volunteers, and we always need new blood donors. And Everything we do, everything, is because of the generosity of the American public, so we can always use financial donations as well. That's terrific. Gail, thank you so oh, much. Oh, it's such a pleasure. We could, we could talk forever. <laughs> this is so amazing. So thank you so much thank for doing you, this. Thank you, Laura. Thanks. And thanks, everyone, for listening. To learn more about Gail and the tremendous work that she and her team and these amazing volunteers are doing here at the American Red Cross, you can visit our website at www.shesaidshesaidpodcast.com. We'll include links to the Red Cross as well as some specifics around some initiatives that Gail and her team have under Way. Thanks for listening.